Hello. Are you walking in a winter wonderland or are you squelching in a soggy maiden head? Either way, would you like to be on Fantasy Book Swap? If so, simply record yourself introducing your favourite winter reading and explain why it is your favourite. If you email that to fantasybookswap at gmail.com with your name and address, you will be included in a seasonal special of Fantasy Book Swap. I will send you a badge. So get recording. Bye. Hi, I'm Ali Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Fiona Moore, anthropologist, SF author and critic. Hello, what have you been up to recently? Um, well, um, the past term has mostly been uh, teaching and uh, administration. So, uh, you know, and, uh, it hasn't been, um, you know, very productive from other points of view. However, in terms of um, things that I've got out recently uh, that uh, your listeners might like, um, I've recently published a uh, monograph on uh, uh, Doctor Who and the Robots of Death with um, obverse books um, for available for, uh, you know, a, a low price from their website as <laughs> a physical and ebook. Um, and I've uh, had a, a short story come out from uh, Abyss and Apex with another one from the same publisher coming out next year and a uh, novelette uh, with Cosmas Infinity is also to be published in the first quarter of 2022. Well, that's amazing. So I'll put links to, well, I'll put a link to Obverse Books in the show notes and no doubt We'll find more information about your other books um, on your website, right? Yes. Um, just if people want a quick link, uh, best place is my blog, which is called A Doctor of Many Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the URL.com. And also it's what, uh, if you uh, enter that phrase into Google, you will get that, as well as the uh, transcript for Doctor Who and the Revenge of the Cybermen, which is where I got the quote from. And you can tell that's uh, my big nerddom, can't you? <laughs> Yeah, that will be in the show notes. Don't you worry. So um, you've chosen Knight's Castle by Edgar Eager, mm-hmm. um, who was is an author I've, I've always sort of, well, not always, but I have heard about, but had not read before. So um, I was absolutely delighted to get this opportunity. Can you summarise the plot for us? All right. Well, um, the plot is kind of a, sounds odd to say it for a children's book, but a metatextual riff on uh, several E. Nesbitt books, but mm. particularly focusing on, and I'm going to blank on the name, The City, The Magic City. Magic City. Yeah. yeah that's good. I didn't blank on it. Yeah, Magic City. 
um, but um, set in um, then contemporary um, uh, New England. Uh, two children, uh, Roger and Anne, are, uh, uh, find their summer holiday plans are uh, suddenly thrown into chaos when their father has to go to Baltimore to uh, see a medical specialist and uh, they have to spend the summer with living with their Aunt Catherine and their somewhat... Uh, Slightly unlikable, at least at first, uh, cousins Eliza and Jack. But um, part of this, um, you know, the, uh, Roger, um, the two children, uh, Dur and Anne are two point of view children, uh, pr principally Roger. But Roger, who is mad for uh, medieval history, uh, well, sort of medieval-ish history, he mm -hmm. likes fiction. And also for collecting toy soldiers, is given by their aunt a, um, a, a castle with knights. Um, and he finds uh, through the magic of an old toy soldier that he kind of carries with him as a talisman that um, he goes to the castle at night, you know, in sort of dreams. Um, mm. They're not quite. Initially, uh, you know, he, for uh, various reasons, he finds himself in the uh, in the story of Ivanhoe, as written by Sir Walter Scott. But um, through his intervention, completely messes up the story of Ivanhoe, mm -hmm. because one of the things about this magic is that the children's activities outside of the magic sphere direct the magic. So mm -hmm. he winds up in Ivanhoe because he uh, had been using the castle to play Ivanhoe. And then the other children kind of wind up coming in both outside the, mag uh, the magic sphere and then coming into the magic with Roger in, in the dreams. They further mess up the story, of course, in, in various interesting ways. But then, um, you know, um, it's not much of a, I won't spoiler it by saying how, but also the children find ways of undoing the damage they did to the story and in a way kind of producing a more satisfactory ending for the characters than, uh, um, than, than a contemporary 1950s child would view Sir Walter Scott as having done. <laughs> yes, I, I very much appreciated that because they're very much Team Rebecca, aren't they? In terms oh, of yeah. Megan Howard yeah. and, uh, and sort of very much uh, don't like um, Rowena. And I'm 100% mm -hmm. with them on that. They are totally correct. But the, other, the thing I really liked about it was the kind of Ivanhoe aspect seemed to be very much metatextual, not just from the book of Ivanhoe, but from mm. the contemporary film of Ivanhoe. Yes. Where Elizabeth Taylor is playing mm -hmm. Rebecca. So, uh, yes, and, and that Rowena is even more wishy-washy than, um, than, than in the book. Uh, so yes, I, I, I am 100% on their side with that. So when did you first encounter Edward Eager? Well, I can't really remember specifically. I think I must have been uh, around seven or so because I tended to identify with the, uh, the younger characters more. Mm. And, uh, and one of the things, again, for um, the benefit of people who haven't encountered him because uh, he seems to be a lot less read in um, uh, the UK than uh, in the US and in Canada, where I grew up. Um, but um, he, uh, his books for children are kind of um, 
they're not just about these particular children, Roger and Anne. They're also about a previous generation of children mm. who are, in fact, um, you know, uh, um, Roger and Anne's mother and aunt, as they figure in the book. Mm. Um, and in both cases, there's a child of roughly about seven or eight. Martha's mm. about seven in Half Magic and uh, Anne is eight in uh, a Knight's Castle. And so I think I must have been about that age when I uh, encountered the books because of that. I think I, well, I'm, sure I discovered it thanks to my mother, um, who was of the generation to enjoy Mm. these books new, and um, was also kind of very, very keen to introduce me and my sister to books uh, she loved as a child. You know, we read a lot of contemporary fiction, but also uh, she'd introduce us to uh, books she'd loved. And uh, my grandmother also was uh, quite keen to do the same. So uh, I read uh, way too much Edwardian children's literature for any uh, child of the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, but um, yeah, I definitely, um, you know, we we had, uh, we definitely had both Knight's Castle and Half Magic. And I'm pretty sure, sh- I know I read the other ones, but I'm pretty sure they were library books. It's uh, sort of interesting to kind of, uh, particularly when, when you uh, know that kind of the uh, younger generation of uh, protagonists are the children of the older one, you can start to mm. see some of the, the, the dynamics going on. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why Edward Eagle is not very well known when I was growing up, because certainly E. Nesbitt was mm. very widely read when I was a child, partly because of the BBC TV adaptations, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ego's um, intertextuality and his, uh, he obviously really, really admired um, Inez Bitt, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, I think some of it is um, because um, of well, one of the things I uh, see um, Eager is doing as an adult. <laughs> Mm. Um, is um, I think the intertextual is kind of the issue because um, part of um, what I get from this uh, is um, American children's literature, at least, uh, you know, um, for a lot of the 20th century, I think has a little bit of an inferiority complex compared to, uh, um, although some very, very wonderful American and classic American children's books, Charlotte's Web, you know, uh, um, little House, uh, you know, the um, there, there's often a feeling that the classic children's books are British, you know, um, Five Children in It, um, the, uh, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland, you know, all these, uh, uh, the, the, the many, many things that Disney keeps doing, uh, mm-hmm. uh, adaptations of, um, you know, so, um, so, and I think one of the things that uh, Eager was doing was kind of almost explicitly kind of um, doing something Nesbitt-like, but very firmly situating it in uh, the US. So, um, you know, saying kind of to uh, American children of the 1950s, you know, you too can have Nesbitt-style Amer- uh, exciting adventures, but also explicitly not kind of trying to do Cod Nesbitt. I mean, one of the things um, I thought was interesting was uh, the way in which he's kind of doing for Roger and Anne and Jack and Eliza what Nesbitt was doing for her child protagonists, you know, giving us, uh, you know, uh, kids, contemporary kids with contemporary interests and contemporary issues uh, that, um, you know, encounter magic and, uh, you know, uh, deal with it and relate to it in uh, their uh, their various ways. 
So, um, so I kind of, uh, I kind of think that uh, you know the intertextuality of the project is kind of central to uh, appreciating it. And but also, I mean, kids aren't going to be thinking in those terms. But I think uh, you know, kids also are going to be thinking, yeah. It's a little bit like um, at the time of the year where, you know, uh, recording this in December, where there's a lot of Christmas carols, but, um, you know, you know, the carol Silver Bells. Yes. One of the things I think is interesting about that is that um, it's very, very explicitly in an urban American context, singing about the sort of sights that uh, people might see in uh, an American city at Christmas, rather than kind of trying to be sort of Courier and Ives and Cod Victorian and Sleigh Bells and Reindeer and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I almost see these, uh, you know, the eager books in the same kind of light. It's saying, you know, kind of uh, this is, you know, children's experience of magic doesn't have to take place in um, in the Edwardian era. You know, it uh, can be um, alive in the uh, in the 50s. And even like they, he brings in, uh, you know, science, 50s science and even a little bit of 50s politics, I noticed, you know, just uh, in, in uh, not in a way that's going to alienate uh, the children, I don't think, but, uh, you know, in a way that they would sort of recognise. Yes. I, I, one of the, the bits I really loved about that was Jack's input. Oh, Jack's yeah. obviously the oldest child. He's kind of going beyond the... He doesn't sort of really want to admit that he believes in magic. He doesn't really want to admit that he plays with toys mm. anymore. He's very into his camera and photography and uh, he has his own dark room and they are I mean we'll talk about this a bit later on but they are quite privileged children obviously financially privileged but um I did like the kind of explanation of where he brought in Robin Hood because Mm -hmm. Robin Robin Hood does appear in um Ivanhoe but he's not a not a huge part of it but that's that's Jack's what's what Jack really liked and also mm. him trying to take photos and that mm. kind of how that those the mixture between the modern and the fantasy and the science fiction and the fantasy, how that does kind of end up messing with everything. And that yeah. was so fun. I really enjoyed that. And also the, uh, the, the can, could he really have taken a photo of Robin Hood? Because Robin Hood poses for a photo, yeah. but then Anne bursts into the, um, Mm-hmm. the dark room and the photo is spoiled so that kind of fantasy of could the photo have really worked or could it not you know is is the go the, the fantasy and the going back in time the time travel elements can you really take photo when photos mm-hmm. haven't been invented and that was such that was such an interesting thought experiment aspects mm-hmm. of the book that that children could or could pick up on or could not um, and just take it on face value. But I love that. Yeah, I think, I mean, just first of all, say in terms of character beats, I just love the bit where uh, Jack actually, you know, kind of has a quiet little play with the castle um, secretly on his own because he's 13 and way too big for these sorts of things. But anybody who knows 13 year old children, hi Mickey, uh, um, knows that, uh, you know, they do sort of, you know, they are terribly, terribly grown up, but they do secretly, secretly love to uh, do children's things just to kind of be a kid again for a little bit. Well, I mean, so, think, I mean if yeah. I'm ever anywhere, like, you know, when I used to have to take my stepson to the um, the children's uh, hospital, yeah. while I'm in the waiting room, yeah, if there's a doll's house, I'm looking at it. 
you know, there's Lego I'm going to be playing with yeah. it. It's just sort of a bit impossible not to, I think. Yeah. We all, we all sort of secretly would like to do that. And of course, you have your tiny things that you make. Yeah. It's, it's, easy, it's easier as an adult is the thing. You know, as an adult, yeah. you know, I mean, as an adult, you're expected to play with children, you know, so it's sort of okay yes. to get down and play. And, and if as an adult you have a little play, nobody's going to uh, question your dignity. But I mean, I... Uh, got a lot of firsthand uh, insight into kind of early teens, sort of late tens, early teen children when I was working for Parks Canada, because uh, since I was a French language interpreter, I usually wound up uh, t- t- teaching French immersion children. And so most of them were between the ages of 12 and 14. And there was this sense, you know, they were all growing up and were very dignified and very, very mature but, you know, they were just kind of secretly waiting for somebody to give them permission to, yeah. like, you know, uh, put on a, um, uh, a 19th century soldier's drac- jacket and grab a wooden rifle and pretend to drill, you know, just so long as everybody understood that they were doing it because the nice tour guide lady has said, why don't you put on that jacket and take yes. that um, gun and I'll show you how to drill, you know, rather than because they really wanted to, because, you know, they're too mature for that. Yeah, that they, they, there's kind of that you, you start yeah. as a child mm-hmm. around the age of, of sort of nine, ten, eleven, mm-hmm. to start getting a, a sense of how other people are viewing you yeah. and other people's yeah. uh, opinions of what you're doing starts yeah. to sort of be that little bit more important. Yeah. And you kind of you develop self-consciousness in a way that younger children generally some do some don't but generally younger children don't you know the the kind of way that it's perfectly acceptable when you're eight to run along the street pretending to escape from Godzilla yeah in a way that it's not (laughs) acceptable when you're older yeah but on the subject of the uh, technology and so forth, I mean, it's interesting. I, at the end of the story, uh, Jack says that none of his pictures came out, even the ones that, uh, but, you know, knowing how cameras at the time worked, you know, that could easily just have been a mist- uh, mistake as well. So it's ambivalent, yes. particularly because um, the knights themselves kind of wind up un- unproblematically using technology and even science fictional technology as part of it, you know, when um, when Anne and Eliza build the magic city, it's it's a 50s city. And so the knights kind of just unproblematically start driving cars and motorbikes. And yes. uh, Rebecca kind of, um, you know, becomes a health visitor, you know, kind of going from house to house with, uh, you know, a basket of medicines caring for the sick. And, uh, you know, and uh, uh, Ivanhoe even, um, you know, uh, has his own flying saucer. Yes. You know, yes, which is an uh, actual t- coffee cup saucer. I yes, love that. Um, yes, and it's Wedgwood. Uh, it's, it's a Wedgwood saucer, so he calls it Edge World, which is a lovely pun. Yes. Uh, and I, uh, so kind of in some ways, yeah. And, and when Jack Trapp photographs the uh, Robin Hood and his men, you know, uh, you know, although they, they just accept it on problem. I mean, they don't know what cameras are themselves. When he says, I'd like to take your picture, Robin Hood just poses away. And so, uh, you know, there yeah. is kind of this ambivalence. Is it that magic won't take the technology, um, you know, or is it something else? When I'm imagining these these characters, it is most definitely the Hollywood versions of them mm-hmm. that I'm imagining. So the hero pose yeah. and all of that. I, I, yeah, I just love that. Well, I think I think also there's something further intertextual going on there, actually, because you said for, it's not just 
uh, Scott's Ivanhoe, but very much the 1954, I think, film uh, of Ivanhoe that yeah. plays a big part in the story. And and that's kind of got the Hollywoodization thing, you know, it's kind of even one step further removed from Scott's a very uh, ahistorical Merry England. And it's kind of a sort of a fantasy American Merry England that uh, bears even less resemblance. I know it was shot in Borehamwood, but it, with uh, a very, very firm eye on the American market. Most definitely. And, yeah. and it, it's, and, it's the yeomanly, what what, yeah. um, what uh, Eager calls the yeomanly language. Yeah. So but it's, he also, yeah. Scott's imagination of what mm-hmm. um, ye merry Englandy um, people would talk like, um, which of course isn't at all what people yeah. at that era would have talked like. Yeah, so but he plays so. with that further because he uh, has the knights, some of the knights and uh, outlaws, talking in um, contemporary American sorts of ways. You know, uh, uh, much Miller talks like a, um, a an up back somebody from upstate New York, you know, and uh, yes. uh, so there, um, and I think some of this is also partly to do with Ed Eager's own background, because uh, he uh, wrote for musicals. Right. In his day job. Interesting. So I think he was kind of uh, Broadway musical. So I think he was kind of aware of the sort of fact that for an American crowd pleasing audience, you'd have to, uh, you know, kind of Americanize things, but also sometimes there's a little bit of a wink, you know, if you're, oh, uh, yeah, yeah um, a, a, a sophisticated New York audience will, uh, if they haven't read Ivan, if you're doing a musical on Ivanhoe, the sophisticated New York audience will at least be aware of it rather than read it. And so uh, if you've got characters uh, talking, uh, you know, in uh, uh, American accents, you know, it's a little bit of a wink to the audience uh, that mm. uh, this is fiction. So, yeah. That's and I love that. I, that makes so much sense because I think one of the things he does is that his dialogue is amazing. Mm. It's really funny dialogue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think the way that he is quite spare in his descriptions. Yeah. And so he can do a lot with a sentence about how the characters are feeling. Mm. And there's there's that's. You know, and and it's often through physical description mm. rather than in, internal, like you know, monologue yeah. of you know, and looked at Eliza with the disdain of an eight-year-old. You know that that mm-hmm. sort of yeah. yeah, you know, and and how she's feeling about being a bit left behind, and but then the fantasy says that she is a powerful sorceress. Mm-hmm. And so she's kind of then her status is upped, and I love that was just brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliantly yeah. done. Um, I just wanted to mention the illustrations yeah. in this. Yes, book. they're beautiful, aren't they? They are fantastic by um, N. M. Bodecker. Yeah, and I, I love, I love them, and I'm gonna, I have taken some photos. I will yeah. put them in the show notes. Yeah. But the the illustration, my favourite one, which I was reading this with my stepson sitting next to me and I started laughing and Danny wanted to know what I was laughing about and it was the the chapter heading to the chapter three which is called the magic city which is obviously as we said named after the E. Nesbitt uh, book Mm. but it's a a knight um, with on a motorbike with a, a raccoon, well, probably a raccoon tail, um, mm. you know, flying behind him. 
in the style of bikers of that uh, era with a lady with um, a wimple and a pointed hat flying behind her on a motorbike. And it's hilarious. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. And I mean, as, as kind of an example of 1950s commercial art, that's brilliant. I think but it's yeah, just done in such a comic and affectionately comic way. And it's really clear that um, Bodecca really understood what Ego was, yeah. was getting at. And it's just wonderful. Yeah, I think uh, they did an awful lot of art around that time. Certainly, it's very familiar. My favourite is the one for Chapter 5 of the uh, Knights Playing Baseball. Oh, yes! <laughs> First of all, because I think that particular sequence in the book is just so hilarious, you yes. know, and uh, also so kind of much a uh, follow on from how the magic works, because at that point, Jack had been, the, the kids had been to a baseball game. Jack, being Jack, was trying to explain some technical point about uh uh, baseball to the uh, younger kids and was uh, illustrating it by putting the knights, uh, positioning the knights as if they were baseball players. And uh, and then, of course, what happens is the kids find the knights uh, unproblematically playing a game of ye old baseball. Yes. You know? And, you know, and so, uh, again, you know, assimilating the contemporary uh, Americana into, unproblematically into the uh, fantasy world of Ivanhoe. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit of it because it's uh, it's so funny. Mm. Meanwhile, a tall Norman had stepped up to home plate, swinging his bat. At sight of him, a murmur ran through the crowd. Some cheered and cried, up the Normans, while others booed. Who is it? Hissed Roger to the varlet. Tis the greatest Norman of them all, said the varlet. Tis de Babe de Bracy. Tis ye sultan of swat. <laughs> just so funny. Oh yeah. <laughs> the mixture of, of the the contemporary and, and the ancient yeah. is hilarious. You think it makes me think about uh, Connecticut Yankee in the court of King Arthur. Yeah. Um and the film with um oh what's his name? Danny Kay. Yeah. 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 And you can totally, you can, I can, uh, that as an adult, I can totally see De Bracy as a kind of a Babe Ruth figure. You know, he would just yeah. totally be exactly that sort of living large baseball star. And of course, it's the Saxons against the Normans. Of course, yeah, of course yes. it is. Yeah, the great, the great local yeah. derby. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, it's uh, something that American gets to relate, can relate to, you know, this um, Saxons v. Normans being a bit like, you know, being analogized to, you know, kind of the, um, you know, the um, Baltimore Orioles versus Toronto Blue Jays game, or you know, so yeah, and yeah, so because if it if it had been set in Britain, it would have been a football match, wouldn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. It's, it's yeah. As we've mentioned, the these characters are relatively privileged. I think Eliza and Jack. It seems to me their family is a lot more wealthy than Roger and Anne's family. Yeah. But what? Do you think that there are aspects of social class that that kind of is it the, the class difference that is kind of the main issue between the children and them initially getting on, or is it more of an age thing? I think it's more of an age thing. I mean, I was trying to remember if there was a kind of an in um, narrative explanation for why um, Catherine's uh, so so wealthy. I mean, in the mm -hmm. uh, first uh, book, Half Magic. Um, you know, the spoiler alert, there's a bit of a um, um, a shift at the, a, a sort of a, 
he kind of riffs a bit on the treasure seekers in that kind of uh, the children um, family start off in not, you know, not poor, but not in great uh, financial circumstances. And then by the end of it, there's a reversal of fortune and, mm. uh, you know, um, but um you know, I, it's quite, Kath, I mean, Catherine lives in a house with wings, for heaven's sakes. Yes. Um, but I think, um, you know, and I, it doesn't, it seems like, and kind of in, I think, first of all, I think mo- the children are kind of not quite in an age to realize the difference that makes. I mean, maybe Jack is, but certainly most of the children aren't. It's like, um I remember at the same age, you know, kind of we would, uh, we, you know, my family had uh, friends that were wealth, uh, you know, uh, where the family was wealthier than uh, we were. And also kind of the, the nature of uh, the Canadian school system is not se- segregated like the British is. Mm. So, I mean, there's a certain amount of postcode segregation, but it is also still true that, you know, kind of um, doctors, kids go to the same schools as bartenders, you know. Yeah. One of the things I see over here is people seem surprised that Justin Trudeau went to a public school and he must be so humble. He went to a, well, no, every prime minister's kids went to a public school. It's the nature of the system. And so you could be, you know, going to play at the house of somebody, which, uh, you know, which is much smaller and, uh, you know, uh, or you could be playing with kids who are at a much bigger and, 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 um, it's only a bit later that you start to think, you know, oh, yeah, you know, there's kind of wealth reasons here. Mm. And I think because, uh, you know, I think the main difference, you know, uh, force difference between the kids uh, and what causes the initial friction is more um, age, but also kind of generation order. Mm. Like one of the things I noticed is that, I mean, Jack's 13, Eliza's 11, Roger's 11 and Anne's eight. Mm. But Eliza and Roger, although they're generally, you know, the same age, can't quite be friends because he's an older child and she's a younger child. And there's mm. a clear aspect of that, you know, in the, in their relationship. And Jack, as we said, you know, kind of part of his character arc in the story is that he has to kind of find his fun and, uh, you know, um, realize that he's a kid, too, you know. Yeah. And, so, and, and of course, is the one who sort of gets a little bit forgotten by all the older kids until she kind of learns to be assertive and uh, through the fact that she's got this status as a powerful sorceress in the fantasy world. Yeah. And if I, the bit I noticed about that was when actually in that same chapter about the baseball game mm. where Anne's feeling quite left out because, um, you know, her aunt is sort of expecting her to play with Eliza and her friends. Yeah. But yeah. Eliza being 11 yeah. is starting on that kind of beginning to be a teenage girl yeah. thing. And, yeah. you know, Eliza and her friends um, just sort of want to gossip and talk about boys, mm-hmm. which Anne is yeah. uh, nowhere mm-hmm. near interested in, yeah. in, in that. And um, so I think that works beautifully. Um, Eli- I mean, Eliza's quite bossy, isn't she? She's, she's quite uh, powerful an overpowering character mm-hmm. and sort of really directs the play when she and Anna are setting out the magic city, but um, she's not mean. She's not, mm-hmm. not doing it to be unkind. It's yeah. just that that yeah. is her personality. And, um, and, and actually she's not judged for it in a way that British books mm-hmm. or contemporary British books may have 
judged her for it and actually punished her for it. Yeah. She does, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't sort of, she just sort of goes, oh, all right then, you know, when Anne is the, turned out <coughs> to be the, the powerful sorceress. Yeah. yeah, she's not, uh, she doesn't sulk or try and take over or anything like that. And I, I liked that. I appreciated that in Eager. Reading this with kind of a wider sense of context, actually, I was quite pleased with the way the gender uh, aspect was dealt with in that, yeah, neither of the girls, I mean, you know, first of all, Anne's arc is, no, no, you totally need to be more assertive, which, uh, you know, is a very good message for little girls in the 50s. And Eliza, as you said, you know, she has to learn to be less bossy, but she isn't judged for being bossy. And indeed, it's kind of a strength, you know, again, there's a bit uh, in a uh, in the battle towards the end of the book, you know, where uh, you know she she basically finds her uh, her niche. You know, she's on a horse in a in a uh, borrowed helmet, uh, waving a banner and a sword, and basically being a Valkyrie. And there, you know, there's no kind of you know, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're a girl, you know. But uh, yeah, but, uh, and she she stops yeah. the boys from taking over. Yeah, which is also yeah. a really uh, an important message you think about kind of the famous five books where yeah. George is allowed to be almost as good yeah. as a boy, but not as good as a boy. Yeah. And the famous fives, Anne, is sort of there yeah. to be little mother. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and doesn't, doesn't get to assert herself at all, really, apart from yeah. you know, washing up and yeah. making sure the boy's, you know, wear clean clothes or whatever, you know. Yeah. And there's not even, I mean, some authors handle that sort of thing by <laughs> kind of uh, showing every so often that there's value to, uh, you know, uh, uh, a more con- uh, a, a more uh, uh, conventional feminine role. Um, but, you know, one of the things that always, I, I never, I was not really that much of a, um, uh, of a blighting kid, you know, uh, uh, especially not the uh, five and seven books, uh, you know, naughty, a kind of naughty, you know, naughty is a fantasy world in toy town. So when mm. you're at that, it, but um, you know, um, and part of it was that, I mean, um, you know, the, the, it was the gender thing, you know, you could either be George or Anne and, yeah. you know, obviously it was far preferable to be George and, Anne just never, ever got any, you know, I mean, there was never even any kind of, um, Sansa Stark moment where uh, Anne, uh, you know, saves the day through through being little mother, and uh, yes. you know, and so uh, it was always just you know really disappointing. Yeah, that's why I I almost always preferred, with all of their problems, the Narnia books to the famous yeah. five because Lucy yeah. and Susan get to be powerful queens. Yeah, um, and I love it. I mean, one of my. F- uh, uh, one of my problematic faves is the horse and his boy. But uh, one of the things I love about it is that uh, in that both Aravis and Lucy are uh, very strong, very sporty, very adventure driven women who nonetheless, you know, will quite happily walk off arm in arms and talk about clothes and makeup and fashion and, uh, yes. you know, other things that the men in the, the story go, huh. but, you know, it was just sort of lovely, you know, yes, you can be the valiant queen on horseback with a bow and arrow and then go off and put on your pretty frock and, uh, you know. Yeah, it's okay to do both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, shall we move on to talking yeah. about my choice, yes. which is The Dragon with the Chocolate Heart by mm-hmm. Stephanie Burgess. Yes. Um, and I had totally forgotten, because I read this ages ago, and then, mm-hmm. you know, when it was first published, and didn't go back to it. So it was first published in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I had forgotten, because I met 
Stephanie at Eastercon. I was on a panel with her and I got her, asked her to sign my copy. Lovely. So that Lovely. was a delightful yeah. surprise when I opened it again. So I'll read the blurb, which is, Adventurine is the fiercest dragon in the mountains. But what happens when such a fierce dragon is tricked into drinking enchanted chocolate and becomes a human? And so that is essentially what this book is about. It's about mm -hmm. uh, a dragon who, um, uh, well, a little girl dragon who uh, decides to go and she gets fed up with being told she's too young to do things all the time mm -hmm. and uh, being a bit of a disappointment to her family. So well, she so decides. She, yeah. So she I think her decide. family, you know, I get the impression her family are just a little bit more kind of, you know, it's okay. She'll find her why, but uh, you know, she herself sort of feels a bit more like she's not. Yeah. yeah. And she has a, an extremely perfect dragon brother mm -hmm. who's reading philosophy. Um, mm -hmm and uh, is always a good dragon. So, yeah, she decides to go off and, you know, show everybody that she can do dragonly mm -hmm. things and ends up getting tricked by a food mage mm -hmm. uh, into uh, turning into a human. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I found it absolutely delightful. Oh, what yeah. do you think? Oh, such a lovely book. Yeah. You know, uh, no, uh, though, uh, you know, warning for anybody who hasn't read it, don't read it hungry and don't oh, yeah. read it eating anything other than chocolate because it will, you know, there is so much chocolate in this book, you know, it will confuse your taste buds if you uh, uh, re read it eating crisps. <laughs> yes, absolutely that. Yeah. yeah. It is definitely a book, a perfect book to read in this weather, I think, when it is yeah. cold. Oh, yeah. And you can have hot chocolate. Um, mm -hmm. I personally have vegan hot chocolate, which is one of the best things in the world. And it is a wonderful, wonderful yeah. book. I found it really humorous, mm -hmm. but not quite in the same way as Edward yeah. Eager, in yeah. Edward Eager's humour. Um, it's sort of... Edward Eager's humour, a lot of it comes from the pastiche. Yeah. Whereas Adventuring is humorous in that when she's sort of learning how to reconcile her mm -hmm. human, her girl side and her dragon side, mm -hmm. which is, uh, and she's tiny. She's a really small girl, mm -hmm. but she's so fierce. And it's just, yeah, it's fabulous. Yeah, she's so fierce. And also like any 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 time, you know, you you any 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 time she, she starts to verge close to things where you're thinking, oh, you know, this is a little bit like she's in a city with no money, and you're thinking, oh, uh, you know, yeah. of, you know, she sells her hair shades of Les Miserables. Oh no, what's gonna happen? But she's just kind of like, nah, you know, I um, you know, I've got this thing growing out of my head and it's a bit of a nuisance. So if somebody's going to give me money for it, you know, whatever, you know, she's just utterly unfettered by human custom. And so she, uh, you know, just has no idea how to behave. And that's just sort of delightfully refreshing. And also the humor that comes from the fact that we, as the readers, you know, know a little bit more about human society. And so we can sort of see some of the things where she is just totally breaking the social rules or uh, doing something really unexpected. And, uh, you know, and everybody around her is shocked or appalled or trying to figure out how to explain to this strange girl what she's doing wrong. And she's just kind of like, 
I just totally do not understand why anybody's upset. <laughs> yeah, there, there's the bit where um, where Horst, uh, the manager of the, the mm. chocolate shop where she ends up working, is trying mm. to explain labour laws to her. Yes. She's like, why would yeah. I want, I'm really enjoying myself. Yeah. Why would I want to have time off? You know, yeah. I'm doing the thing that's really fun and making chocolate is what I enjoy. Why do I need time off from this? Yeah. And it's, it's such a... a so when she buys clothes, she buys clothes that are uh, horribly garish by human standards because she's a dragon and has kind of dragonish tastes and, uh, yeah. you know, just will absolutely not understand, you know, why uh, anybody thinks that, uh, you know, this uh, this dress is garish. Yes, her, her, she, you recognize, she recognizes her dragon family by yeah. their scale patterns. Yeah. So she tries to buy a dress that's similar yeah. to her scale yeah. patterns. So she ends up with a gold and purple dress yeah. for everyday and wear. Yeah. And again, one of the bits that's a bit of a, you know, you know the, the lower ebb of the story is, you know, when she kind of starts to realize and recognize you know uh, what these human mores are and does kind of a, does abandon her original dress you know just because she sort of real oh I must have looked like a complete idiot walking around in this dress I will dress myself in brown and drab colors like everybody expects me to and uh, mm. kind of goes to the other extreme if you like yeah it's sort of like her you know when she she's almost as as though her her clothing is demonstrating her yeah. um, her mood. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, she feels like she's been a failure as, as a dragon girl. Yeah. She and, dresses yeah. like a girl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's a lovely, lovely yeah. book. Um, the this book is told from a first-person perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, I really, I enjoyed... Um, mm -hmm. Adventuring's narrative yeah. voice. What what did you what did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a real sucker for first person narrative, you know, and I will defend it unapologetically. Even people who say, you know, uh, um, oh, but if it's in the first person, that means that you can be certain the character hasn't died by the end. Well, spoiler alert, you know. Uh, sorry, <laughs> guys, you know, I will refer you to uh, Podcane of Mars if you want to, uh, you know. Uh, and similar, and also, you know, the person telling the story, you know, is not always necessarily the protagonist, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. um, the the doctor, uh, you know, uh, Watson may survive the stories, but uh, Holmes, you know, and big yeah, question and mark. But you know, so um, yeah, yeah, there's there's um, Alice Seabold's um, Lovely Bones, which is actually yeah. told from the perspective of a dead girl. So yes, you know. yes. or um, uh, what was the other one? Um, the the one from uh, also the the other Audrey Niffenegger one that was uh, the bestseller again also told oh, by a time travellers not that one but the uh, the one she wrote after that that was kind of less well received it's uh, narrated by um, you know uh, as I recall you know by by a posthumous character and so uh, you know I can't remember the name of it but I can I know yeah yeah yeah. yeah. But yeah, and uh, the thing, uh, the trick about it, though, is to have a strong narrative voice and a believable narrative voice. And also one in which I think this book pulls off nicely, one that gives you um, a sense of what the other characters are thinking whilst not uh, giving the character uh, insights that they wouldn't have. Mm. So, you know, the the fact that, you know, you've got this thing where um, Aventurine, you know, kind of 
you know, people plainly react, you know, positively and negatively to Aventurine's uh, things. And she is uh, all kind of like, you know, she seemed upset, but I didn't know why. So I carried on doing, you know, or uh, yeah. you know, I thought this, uh, she, she said this, but I thought it was silly. So, uh, you know, and uh, I did my own thing anyway. Yeah. Yes. And so the other characters, you know, although she's the narrator, other characters, uh, you know, like, uh, of course, and especially Marina and Silka come through so uh, so brilliantly. You don't uh, she she never, although she is the protagonist and her story is central. She never overwhelms it. You just get such a sense of uh, Marina and Silka as as people and who they are, uh, even though uh, we're seeing it all through a Venturine's first person perspective. I yes, the the relationships between those characters. I mean, Horst mm. is is a bit more in the background. Yeah, but they, they it's the three. It's Marina, Silka, and Adventurine who are yeah. definitely the, the most important characters. We yeah, have yeah. Greta, who's you know an antagonist, yes, um, who who tries to kidnap Adventurine and convince mm-hmm. her to be an unpaid servant because she completely yeah. misreads Adventurine as a kind of um, gullible country bumpkin and mm-hmm. doesn't at all read her as she's not. She is slightly gullible at the beginning because she doesn't really know how humans work. At the same time, she doesn't see her power. You know, she Mm. assumes that because she's small and young that she is powerless and she's not. Mm. Um, But I, I was almost surprised at the end, not spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Not, I was quite almost expecting Marina to be a dragon. Hmm. Almost. But I was I, sort of expecting she would turn out to be a food mage, you know, yes. actually. I didn't expect her to turn out to be a dragon, but I was expecting her to uh, turn out to be a food mage. So uh, when we find out who the actual food mage is, it's, uh, you know, even more, uh, you know, I was like, oh, that's such a delightful resolution and even more fitting. That's, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think that apart from adventuring, I think that Silka is my favorite character. Mm, yeah. Um. And they're all, what's interesting is that they are all, in some sense, they're all refugees. Yeah. They're all ex, none of them are are kind of native to the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we find out that um, Marina has left another country in self-imposed exile, in disgrace. Mm -hmm. Um, because of of her kind of her arrogance in an, in yeah. another setting, Silka is um, well. Actually, we find out in the second book uh, mm. is a refugee mm. and has gone through some horrible things. Has lost her her parents, um, and Aventurine, of course, has come down from the mountains um, as a as a dragon who has been mm. turned into a human, and that's a really a lovely way first of all it's kind of outsiders bonding together which is always a, a, a lovely trope but they are all finding their place yeah. in the city and they all have a place in the yeah. city and silka is she's an entrepreneur she's such yeah. a great yeah such a great character oh yeah now, I think um, one of the things that the two books had in common was that, uh, you know, multiple characters in the story have got journeys they go on, you know, things that they, you know, places they find, you know, and in this case, you know, they're, um, 
and learn and get insights into themselves and their characters that sort of help them be better people. You know, uh, uh, I love Zilka, but I also love Marina just because I know so many people who got that kind of artistic temper, you know, that, uh, and yet uh, she sort of had to recognize that, you know, sometimes perfect is the enemy of uh, good enough that, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the time to have a strop about, uh, about it is not when is not when the King is uh, sitting yes. in your cafe asking for a cup of hot chocolate. Yes. Um, and also that, uh, you know, she has responsibilities to other people. And yeah, and I also totally got this thing that, uh, you know, she had a she had a choice back in her previous, uh, she could have stayed there and kind of fought it out, you know, kind of uh, stared down the gossips and, uh, mm. you know, uh, settled in and said, you know, all right, I'll, uh, you know, the, I'll, I'll prove myself there. But instead, she just kind of went eh, and ran off and started anew somewhere else. And, uh you know, and, and but, you know, one of the at a crucial point in the story, she's sort of thinking uh, she, that flight impulse has hit her again. You know, things are going badly and I should run on. But then she sort of realizes that eventually she'll run out of places to run to. And uh, exactly. that's kind of a key insight for her that she, you know, does have to at some point stop running away and stand her ground. Um, but she kind of gets from a Venturine who is very much yes. the kind of, you know, I will show them types. And, uh, you know, yeah it's lovely to see the way that an adult can be influenced yeah, by yeah. a child, uh, even though adventuring is not a typical child. Yeah, I think there was a little lesson for children in there as well. A little psych, I don't know how many of them pick it up, but uh, you know, the bit where uh, Marina actually admits that she, uh, she failed as adventuring's teacher. Yes. You know, that uh, she, uh, through her neglect and through her own self-absorption, she put Adventurine in a position where she was doing uh, things before she was ready. Mm. And uh, that this was uh, that Adventurine failed, but that this was not Adventurine's fault. It was her fault as a teacher for putting Adventurine in this position. And I mean, the thing is, as a child, you know, even as a sort of an early teenager, you know, your teachers are in such a position of uh, authority that there can be a... Um, you know, a, ten a tendency to assume that, uh, you know, your teachers are uh, are good you know, or not good, but, you know, your teachers are right, even if you hate them, that your teachers are right. Yeah. And sometimes, no, sometimes they're not very good teachers or not very good at teaching you, you know, because everybody's good at something, but, uh, you know, yeah. there are, and um, it can be, I think, a good insight for children to realize that your teachers are not infallible. And, uh, you know, if sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's okay not to get on with a teacher. Sometimes, you know, uh, the, the, some, sometimes it just isn't, you know. I think it's also um, a useful thing for teachers, particularly yeah. teachers primary school children, yeah. to read yeah. a book like this and, yeah. and have a little bit of uh, a moment of self-reflection and, and think, what is the worst thing that will happen if yeah. I admit that I am fallible? self-reflect self-correct and also admit that they're wrong so yeah. I, I liked that aspect too so um it is a book about chocolate a dragon yeah. with a chocolate heart so mm -hmm. um what what were your favorite chocolatey bits of the book or what oh, would you most yeah. like to eat well, I'd actually most like to drink. The description of the hot chocolate the cafe was making was just so scrummy. You know, I was just imagining that hot chocolate, you know, and, uh, you know, I have, uh, you know, the imagining it as being like that sort of French hot chocolate that's kind of uh, almost a pudding, you know, yes. you uh, have to drink it very quickly hot because otherwise, you know, it, uh, 
And, uh, you know, so uh, that was uh, lovely. But I also confess I did, I I have uh, been buying chocolate tarts in Sainsbury's just from the descriptions, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, of, of, of the chocolate tarts that the cafe makes. And there are very, very, there's a very, very good uh, uh, vegan and gluten-free chocolate tart on sale at the moment, which, uh, yeah, I've been uh, right. scurping way too many of thanks to this book, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. I was intrigued by, by the description of the pinch of chilli in the hot chocolate, mm-hmm. which yeah. I can imagine, I'm yeah. going to try that because that sounds yeah. amazing. But I've, I've, been, um, I've been buying, um, you know, very, very dark chocolate, which I can eat. It doesn't mm-hmm. make yeah. me feel. Yeah. With, um, with ginger and, um, mm-hmm. and orange in, and that is amazing. So, yeah, yeah I thoroughly yeah. recommend that. Chocolate chili bars. I've never had, I don't think I've I've ever had hot chocolate with a pinch of chili, but chocolate chili bars are just lovely, you know. Yeah. Little hint of uh, of, uh, chili. That's just great. Well, yeah, people listening, if you have drunk hot chocolate Mm -hmm. with a pinch of chili in, please Mm -hmm. let us know. Let us know how good it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Fiona. That's been, it's been really lovely talking to you. Um, I have actually started reading i'm halfway through the second book in this series oh the girl with the dragon heart the girl with the dragon heart which is told from silka's perspective yeah Yeah. and it's a a tale of spies and bad magic and it's really really good as well very exciting so where can people find you online Okay, well, um, I mentioned my blog before, A Doctor of Many Things, and that's uh, so where you'll find links to uh, most of my other uh, material. But if you you can also find me on most social media under uh, the um, name at Dr. Fiona Moore, all one word. Um, there, there are more, there, there are at least four Fiona Moores with either PhDs or medical doctorates out there. <laughs> I've checked, but I seem to be the only one who uses it a handle. So, uh, you know, why not? Yeah. Um, so yeah, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, um, I'm, um, at, at Dr. Fiona Moore. So yeah, give me a like and a follow. And with the Instagram, the Instagram is mostly me making miniatures. So if you like, uh, watching kind of somebody, uh, build tiny little, uh, uh, one, uh, one 124 and uh, one 144 houses and uh, blog about the frustrations and problems and things of uh, like um, gluing tiny bits of foliage with tweezers, uh, you know, that uh, might well be your bag. And um, well, I really enjoy yeah. Bo Paddington and his outfits. So oh, yes, that's uh, really yes. great thing. I still have to uh, post pictures of his Christmas outfit, uh, don't I? Yeah, I also uh, run a Twitter for uh, uh, one of my miniature things is making uh, teddy bear clothes. And I have uh, Bo Paddington is my model. Uh, so he has a Twitter where uh, we show off the uh, the tiny little outfits I make for him. So uh, if you like, uh, don't like miniature houses, but do like uh, doll and teddy bear clothes, uh, you know, I do that too. So uh, yes, oh, I'm just, I love them. They make me feel so happy. Thank you. So thank you for listening to episode 12 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email fantasybookswap.com. You can subscribe at most of your favourite podcast places or download from Podbean. Thanks to Steve Vapertrails for production assistance and Jack Sadler-Johnson for the use of his beautiful track, Bliss. Until next time. Bye.